The Anything Arty Show every Thursday from 8 till 9 on Waiheke Radio, 88.3 and 107.4 FM. That's the Anything Arty Show, sponsored by the artist goldsmith, Studio Connections on Eroa. Call in to see Christine's latest designs or phone 372-7809 to discuss a commission. Yes, welcome along to another Anything Artist show here on Waiheke Community Radio, 88.3 and 107.4 FM. Thanks to uh, Artist Goldsmith for sponsoring the show and looking after us. Um, check out some of Christine's work down at Ocean View Road on Eroa at Studio Connections. Uh, there's always some interesting pieces of Christine's on display there. And of course, you can always make inquiries when you're in about getting up to see her studio and talking about uh, some commission work. Um, she's just a, does some fantastic uh, stuff. Stuff. <laughs> Sorry, Christine. Um, art with uh, precious metal and uh, and gems. Just magnificent. So make sure next time you're going down Ocean View Road or up Ocean View Road, pop into Studio Connections and have a look and see what's on display. Now we've got a, it's, it's going to be a World Watch show. I think we're going uh, offshore for the entire show tonight. We've got some really interesting conversations with the creator of The 99. Now The 99, again I won't tell you too much about them because the creator himself will tell you more about this. It's a really interesting approach to changing society through the use of comic book heroes. And um, so that's that's one conversation. And the other conversation is uh, with a designer um, and uh, talking about his, his, it's just wonderful, wonderful conversation, talking about his view of, uh, of design. Um, yeah, I, I'm not going to say much more about that until I introduce the man himself. So let me give some background to our first offering tonight. Uh, the conversation we're going to have is with uh, Naif Al-Mutawa, and he created a new generation of comic book heroes um, that really changed the, the stereotypes of what we may have been used to up until now. Now, one of the reasons that comic books work so well is they're really carefully crafted, um, and, and they're built on being able to communicate metaphors, big metaphors. Now, many of the pioneers of what became the comic book industry were Jewish. They were immigrants, the sons of immigrants, and they brought with them unique cultural sensibilities and traditions to their new countries. Predominantly for the comic books, it was when they arrived in the States. In the 20th century, the comic books were the great storytelling medium. Um, and it was this group of uh, uh, predominantly Jewish publishers, editors, writers, artists, helped create the comics that millions of us came to know and love. Now the stories, the comic book stories became a way to give European immigrants hope uh, as they battled a lot of prejudice and distrust while assimilating into the American culture. Not unique to America, but because we're talking comic books, that's the country we'll focus on. Um, and the heroes and the stories could be seen as metaphors breaking down the cultural barriers and distrust between Americans and the newly arrived immigrants uh, by showing that unusual people could become friends and valuable patriotic members of the community was really sparked off when two teenagers who were in, uh, in Cleveland, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, created Superman in the 30s. And they were telling a story that was thousands of years old. So you, if you think about the original stories, it's about a refugee baby sent far away in an interplanetary basket <laughs> um, made by his parents, a stranger in a strange land who had to hide his identity and origins 
wanted only to use his powers for good. Um, and if you think of his, uh, his Kryptonian name, Cal El, is actually Hebrew for voice of God. So there are a number of other traditional Jewish characters and themes appear again and again through a number of different uh, superheroes, sometimes literally, sometimes a subtext. And they continue in comic books uh, right through to today. So you have contemporary Jewish creators such as uh, Art Spiegelman, who created Mouse, uh, Neil Gaiman, who created Sandman, and uh, Harvey Picard, who created uh, American Splendor. And then uh, you've got Ben Catchor, who, who's done The Jew of New York. So that, that storytelling connection between um, Jews and comic books remains unbroken. Uh, and one of the, the key contributors was a, a chap by the name of Will Eisner, who was one of the greatest, well, considered one of the greatest figures in the history of comics. He created the spirit in the 1940s um, and pioneered the whole appreciation of comics as a visual medium. Uh, did a number of uh, courses and books um, that people kind of latched onto. Um, and in fact, the major award for achievement in comic books is named after him. But then he also did something else in 78. He, he kind of broke all the boundaries by creating a book-length comic book called A Contract With God. And this was stories of growing up poor and Jewish and in the Bronx tenement. So again, it's a, a metaphorical story that didn't apply just to him, but a number of other people um, who, who were immigrants into the country over a number of years. So to interest the book publishers, he gave the work the fancy name of graphic novel. And that revolutionary new form of comic book that the term that he invented changed the industry and the art. Um, and in fact, the library, uh, our wonderful library um, of artworks, in fact, they still have. Uh, I, it wasn't, I thought it was a special, but it's not. They've actually got a, a new section now on graphic novels. And there's some amazing pieces of work in there. So next time you're in the library, um, check it out where it is. It's in about the second aisle up by the window. But just check with the team. They'll tell you where it is. There's some really interesting graphic novels up there. Anyway. Um, they, so, uh, why did we go through all of that? Oh yes, the background. So that's in terms of some of the significance to the 99. So if you put the metaphorical significance aside, um, there's actually a whole lot of significance for the 99, um, this new generation of comic book heroes in terms of street cred in the world of comic books. It all started in 2004 with the Tishkeel Media Group. They first launched the 99 in traditional comic book series. Um, and this year, 2011, uh, the 99 joined forces with the Justice League of America, DC's long-standing group of superheroes. Um, so they're standing kick to shoulder with the likes of Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman to defeat the Friends of Evil. So you don't get alongside those DC characters um, unless you've really got something to offer. They're very protective about their um, brand. So that's, a, that's an amazing achievement um, for uh, the T-Skill group and for Naif Al-Mutawa. Uh, and what he wants to create around this, the 99. Now, the background to the 99, metaphorically what they represent and his aims of what they can do socially, we're going to hear uh, from the man himself right now in a talk he gave to a group in the States. In October 2010, the Justice League of America will be teaming up with the 99. Icons like Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman and their colleagues will be teaming up with icons Jabbar, Noura, Jama, and their colleagues. It's a story of intercultural intersections. And what better group to have this conversation than those that grew out of fighting fascism in their respective histories and geographies. As fascism took over Europe in the 1930s, an unlikely reaction came out of North America. 
as Christian iconography got changed and swastikas were created out of crucifixes, Batman and Superman were created by Jewish young men in the United States and Canada, also going back to the Bible. Consider this. Like the prophets, all the superheroes are missing parents. Superman's parents die on Krypton before the age of one. Bruce Wayne, who becomes Batman, loses his parents at the age of six in Gotham City. Spider-Man is raised by his aunt and uncle. And all of them, just like the prophets who get their message from God through Gabriel, get their message from above. Peter Parker is in a library in Manhattan when the spider descends from above and gives him his message through a bite. Bruce Wayne is in his bedroom when a big bat flies over his head and he sees it as an omen to become Batman. Superman is not only sent to Earth from the heavens, or Krypton, but he's sent in a pod, much like Moses was on the Nile. <laughs> and you hear the voice of his father, Jor-El, saying to Earth, I have sent to you my only son. <laughs> These are clearly biblical archetypes, and, and what the thinking behind that was to create positive, globally resonating storylines that could be tied to the same things that other people were pulling mean messages out of. Because then the person that's using religion for the wrong purpose just becomes a bad man with a bad message. And it's only by linking positive things that the negative can be delinked. This is the kind of thinking that went into creating the 99. The 99 references the 99 attributes of Allah in the Quran, things like generosity and mercy and foresight and wisdom, and dozens of others that no two people in the world would disagree about. It doesn't matter what your religion is, and even if you're an atheist, you don't raise your kid telling them, you know, make sure to lie three times a day. Right? These are basic human values. And so the backstory of the 99 takes place in 1258, which history tells us the Mongols invaded Baghdad and destroyed it. All the books from Dar al-Hikmah Library, the most famous library in its day, were thrown in the Tigris River, and the Tigris changed its color with ink. It's a story passed on generation after generation. I rewrote that story. And in my version, the librarians find out that this is going to happen. And here's a side note. If you want a comic book to do well, make the librarians the hero. It always works well. <laughs> So, so the librarians find out, and they get together a special solution, a chemical solution called King's Water, that when mixed with 99 stones, would be able to save all that culture and history in the books. But the Mongols get there first, the books and this solution get thrown in the Tigris River. Some librarians escape, and over the course of days and weeks, they dip the stones into the Tigris and suck up that collective wisdom that we all think has lost the civilization. Those stones are then smuggled as three prayer beads of 33 stones each through Arabia into Andalusia and Spain, where they're safe for 200 years. But in 1492, two important things happen. The first is the fall of Grenada, the last Muslim enclave in Europe. The second is Columbus finally gets funded to go to India, but he gets lost. Right? <laughs> so 33 of the stones are smuggled onto the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria and are spread in the New World. 33 go on the Silk Road to China, South Asia, and Southeast Asia, and 33 are spread between Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. And now it's 2010, and there are 99 heroes from 99 different countries. Now, it's very easy to assume that those books, because they were from a library called Dar al-Hikmah, were, were Muslim books, but that's not the case. Because the caliph that built that library, his name was al-Ma'mun, he was Harun al-Rashid's son. He had told his advisors, get me all the scholars to translate any book they can get their hands onto into Arabic, and I will pay them its weight in gold. After a while, his advisors complained. They said, your highness, the scholars are cheating. They're writing in big handwriting to take more gold. <laughs> to which he said, let them be, because what they're giving us is worth a lot more than what we're paying them. So the idea of an open architecture and open knowledge is not new to my neck of the desert. 
the concept centers on something called the Nur stones. Nur is Arabic for light. So these 99 stones, a few kind of rules in the game. Number one, you don't choose the stone, the stone chooses you. There's a King Arthur element to the storyline. Okay? Number two, all of the 99, when they first get their stone or their power, abuse it. They use it for self-interest. And there's a very strong message in there that when you start abusing your stone, you get taken advantage of by people who will exploit your powers. Okay? Number three, the 99 stones all have within them a mechanism that self-updates. Now, there are two groups that exist within the Muslim world. Everybody believes the Quran is for all time and all place. Some believe that means that the original interpretation from you know, a couple thousand years ago is what's relevant today. I don't belong there. Then there's a group that believes the Quran is a living, breathing document. And I capture that idea within these stones that self-update. Now, the main bad guy, Rugal, does not want these stones to update. So he's trying to get them to stop updating. He can't use the stones, but he can stop them. And by stopping them, he has more of a fascist agenda where he gets some of the 99 to work for him. They're all wearing cookie cutters, same color uniform. They're not allowed to individually express who they are and what they are. And he controls them from the top down. Whereas when they work for the other side, eventually, when they find out that this is the, the wrong person, they've been manipulated, they actually, each one has a different colorful kind of um, uh, dress. And the last point about the 99 Nur stones is this. So the 99 work in teams of three. Why three? A couple of reasons. Number one, we have a thing within Islam that you don't leave a boy and a girl alone together because the third person is temptation or the devil, right? I think that's there in all cultures, right? <laughs> But this is not about religion, it's not about prostatizing. There's this very strong social message that needs to get to kind of the, the deepest crevices of kind of intolerance. And the only way to get there is to kind of play the game. And so this is the way I dealt with it. They work in teams of three, two boys and a girl, two girls and a boy, three boys, three girls, no problem. And the Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung also spoke about the importance of the number three in all cultures. So I figure I'm covered. Well, <laughs> I got accused in a few blogs that I was actually out, sent by the Pope to, to preach the Trinity and Catholicism in the Middle East. So you... <laughs> You believe who you want, I gave you my version of the story. <laughs> so here are some of the characters. We have Mujiba from Malaysia. Her main power is she's able to answer any question. She's the trivial pursuit queen, if you want. But when she first gets her power, she starts going on game shows and making money. <laughs> we have Jabbar from Saudi, who starts breaking things when he has the power. Now, Mumita is a fun one to name. Mumita is the destroyer. So, you know, the 99 attributes of Allah have the yin and the yang. There's the powerful, the hegemonist, the strong. And there's also the, the kind, the generous. I'm like, are all the girls going to be kind and merciful and the guys all strong? I'm like, you know what? I've met a few girls who are destroyers in my lifetime, so... <laughs> we have Jamat from Hungary, who first starts making weapons. He's the technology whiz. Musawwara from Ghana. Hadia from Pakistan. Jalil from Iran, who uses fire. And this is one of my favorite, Batina from Yemen. Al-Batin is the hidden, so Batina is hidden, but she's a superhero. I came home to my wife and I said, I created a character after you. My wife is Saudi from Yemeni roots. And she said, show me, so I showed her this. She said, that's not me. I said, I said look at the eyes, they're your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so I had promised my investors this would not be another made in fifth world country production. This was going to be Superman or wasn't worth my time or their money. So from day one, the people involved in the project, bottom left is Fabian Nicieza, writer for X-Men and Power Rangers. Next to him is Dan Pinozian, one of the character creators for the modern-day X-Men. Top right is Stuart Moore, a writer for Iron Man. Next to him is John McRae, who's an inker for Spider-Man. And we entered Western consciousness with the tagline, next Ramadan, the world will have new heroes, back in 2005. <laughs> now, I went to Dubai to the Arab Thought Foundation conference, and I was waiting by the coffee for the right journalist. Didn't have a product, but had energy. And I found somebody from the New York Times, and I, and I cornered him, and I pitched him, and I think I scared him. Because, <laughs> because he basically promised me, we had no product, but he said, you know, we'll give you a paragraph in the art section, if you'll just go away. You know? 
So I said, great. So I called him up a few weeks afterwards. I said, hi, Hassan. He said, hi. I said, happy new year. He said, thank you. We had a baby. I said, congratulations. Like, I care, right? <laughs> so when's the article coming out? He said, Naif, Islam and cartoon? That's not timely. You know, maybe one next week, next month, next year, but you know, it'll come out. So a few days after that, what happens? What happens is the world erupts in the Danish cartoon controversy. I became timely. Right? So a flurry of phone calls and emails in the New York Times. Next thing you knew, there's a full page covering us positively. January 22, 2006, which changed our lives forever. Because anybody Googling Islam and cartoon or Islam and comic, guess what they got? They got me. <laughs> and the 99 were like superheroes kind of flying out of what was happening around the world. And that led to all kinds of things, from being in curriculums and universities and schools, to one of my favorite uh, pictures I have from South Asia it was a couple of men with long beards and a, and a lot of girls wearing the hijab, looked like a school. The good news is they're all holding copies of the 99 smiling and they found me to send the picture. The bad news is they were all photocopies, so we didn't make a dime in revenue. <laughs> We've been able to license the 99 comic books into eight languages so far, Chinese, Indonesian, Hindi, Urdu, Turkish, opened a theme park through a license in Kuwait a year and a half ago called the 99 Village Theme Park, 300,000 square feet, 20 rides, all with our characters, a couple back-to-school licenses in Spain and Turkey. But the biggest thing we've done to date, which is just, an, it was just amazing, is that we've done a 26-episode animated series, which is done for global audiences. In fact, we're already going to be in the US and Turkey, we know. It's 3D CGI, which is going to be very high quality, written in Hollywood by the writers behind Ben 10 and Spider-Man and Star Wars Clone Wars. So the 99 is technology, it's entertainment, it's design. But that's only half the story. As the father of five sons, I worry about who they're going to be using as role models. I worry because all around me, even within my extended family, I see religion being manipulated. As a psychologist, I worry for the world in general, but worry about the perception of how people see themselves in my part of the world. Now, I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm licensed in New York State. I trained at Bellevue Hospital Survivors of Political Torture Program. And I heard one too many stories of people growing up to idolize their leadership only to end up being tortured by their heroes. And torture is a terrible enough thing as it is, but when it's done by your hero, that just, that just breaks you in so many ways. I left Bellevue, went to business school, and started this. Now, I, one of the things that I, I refer to when I, when I, when I, the, about the importance of this message is that I gave a lecture at the medical school at Kuwait University where I lecture on the biological basis of behavior. And I gave the students two articles, one from the New York Times and one from New York Magazine. And I took away the name of the writer, the name of the... Everything was gone except the facts. And the first one was about a group called the Party of God, who wanted to ban Valentine's Day, red was made illegal, any boys and girls caught flirting would get married off immediately. Okay? The second one was about a woman complaining because three minivans with six bearded men pulled up and started interrogating her on the spot for talking to a man who wasn't related to her. And I asked the students in Kuwait where they thought this incident took place. The first one, they said Saudi Arabia. There was no debates. The second one, they were actually split between Saudi and Afghanistan. What blew their mind was the first one took place in India. It was the party of a Hindu god. The second one took place in upstate New York. It was an Orthodox Jewish community. But what breaks my heart, and what's alarming, is that in those two interviews, the people around who were interviewed as well refer to that behavior as Talibanization. In other words, good Hindus and good Jews don't act this way. This is Islam's influence on Hinduism and Judaism. But what the students in Kuwait say? They said, it's us. And this is dangerous. It's dangerous when a group self-identifies itself as extreme. This is one of my sons, Rayyan. 
who's a Scooby-Doo addict, you can tell by the glasses there. He actually called me a meddling kid the other day. <laughs> but I borrowed a lesson that I learned from, from him. Last summer when we were in our, in our home in New York, he was out in the yard playing in his playhouse, and I was in my office white working, and he came in nagging, Bob, I want you to come with me, I want my toy, I want you... And I said, Rayan, just go away. He left the Scooby-Doo in his house, I said, just go away, I'm working, I'm busy. And what Rayan did then, is he sat there, he tapped his foot on the floor at three and a half, and he looked at me and he said, Baba, I want you to come with me to my office in my house. I have work to do. <laughs> Rayan reframed the situation and brought himself down to my level. And, <laughs> and with the 99, that is what we, we aim to do. You know, I think that there's a big parallel between benting the crucifix out of shape and creating swastikas. And when I see pictures like this of parents or uncles who think it's cute to have a little child holding a Quran and having a suicide bomber belt around them to protest something, the hope is that by linking enough positive things to the Quran, that one day we can move this child from being proud in the way they're proud there to that. And I think... I think the 99 can and will achieve its mission. As an undergrad at Tufts University, we were giving away free falafel one day, and uh, you know, it was Middle East Day or something, and people came up and picked up the, the culturally uh, resonant image of the falafel, ate it, and you know, talked and left, and no two people could disagree about what the word free was and what the word falafel was. Behind that's free falafel, you know. Or so we thought, until a woman came rushing across the campus and dropped her bag on the floor, pointed up to the sign and said, who's falafel? <laughs> True story. She was actually coming out of an Amnesty International meeting. <laughs> Just today, DC Comics announced the cover of our upcoming crossover. On that cover, you see Batman, Superman, and a fully clothed Wonder Woman. Um, with our Saudi member of the 99, our Emirati member, and our Libyan member. On April 26, 2010, President Barack Obama said that of all the initiatives since his now famous Cairo speech in which he reached out to the Muslim world, the most innovative was that the 99 reached back out to the Justice League of America. We live in a world in which the most culturally innocuous symbols like the falafel can be misunderstood because of baggage, and where religion can be twisted and purposefully made what it's not supposed to be by others. In a world like that, there'll always be a job for Superman and the 99. Thank you very much. Waiheke Radio, your local radio station. Variations on a theme with Mark Smith, where your intrepid DJ takes you down some of the lesser-known backwaters of the classical music repertoire. Join me on Sundays at 11 o'clock on Waiheke Radio. The Anything Arty Show, every Thursday from 8 till 9 on Waiheke Radio, 88.3 and 107.4 FM. That's the Anything Arty Show, sponsored by the artist goldsmith, Studio Connections on Eroa. Call in to see Christine's latest designs or phone 372-7809 to discuss a commission. Yes, you're listening to the Anything Artist Show here on Waiheke Community Radio, 88.3 and 107.4 FM. 
we opened up the show with a conversation with Naif Al-Mutawa uh, and really interesting in what he's doing with his uh, group of comic book heroes, The 99. And it'll be interesting to um, see what happens uh, with the movie. The uh, American previews were in October uh, this year. So maybe mid next year by the time we get it. Um, but yeah, so just uh, really interesting to see um, what impact that will have. Now, just something that consumes um, acres and acres of of, uh, of uh, newspaper space, um, TV coverage, blah blah, you name it, is uh, fashion. Where would we be without it? So we're doing, uh, we're having a, uh, we've got uh, Mr. Cunningham uh, again, Bill Cunningham from New York, um, giving us a view of what's happening on the streets of uh, New York in terms of uh, everyday fashion. Um, and then we're going to have a look at, uh, um, for those fashion aficionados that are listening, um, we're going to have a bit of a look at uh, what the, uh, the latest wearable stuff is um, for men and women we should be looking out for. So let's first of all hear from Bill and see what he's got to say. This is Bill Cunningham, and the story from the streets of New York today is one of contrast. Earlier this month in Paris, I noticed that women, as always, were in fanciful high heels, platforms, the whole works. I got back to New York, and what I'm seeing, not everyone, but a vast majority of women, they're all in flat, no-heel shoes. So all the flat, uh, uh, the women in New York in the last 10 days, and all the heels are women in Paris earlier this month. There's a difference between dressing in Paris and dressing in New York and dressing uh, in India or anywhere else. Those things exist. And the American point of view has always been the flat shoes. There is no question the comfort factor is what drives American fashion. Now, they're out of the jogging sneakers and all of that stuff and it's again the little flat shoes that have been a major thing in New York but they kind of receded last year and everyone was onto these heels. Well now the, they've receded and the last 10 days when we had this spring weather, the flat shoe, it's everywhere, it's like an epidemic. But then the curiosity I saw in Paris that were uh, here you see in two pictures that we were, we couldn't have been 40 feet outside of one of the shows. And there were three women, and they were all changing from their heels to flat shoes. Now, why they bothered to bring heels in the first place, the carpeting in the fashion show tents is black, the walls are black, they don't turn the lights on, and you think someone hadn't paid the electricity bill. I mean, you can't even see, you can't see someone's white teeth. And they all had on these platform shoes and heels, and then they couldn't wait to get out of them when they got outside. Now, I think the American influence, once again, is moving the French in that direction. The comfort factor. And where better to start than shoes? Yes, well, there we go. Um, so, heels and flats, where do you go with that? 
Um, but talking about heels in terms of uh, what's hot, what's not at the moment internationally. So, uh, ladies, um, you want to grab yourself some Salvatore Ferragamo heels if you haven't already got some in the wardrobe. Uh, these are the in thing for the season at the moment. Um, although, yes, well, no, it will be for us because we're coming into summer, so it'll be all right. Um, so, Salvatore Ferragamo goes back to uh, about. 1919, 1918, early 1900s when he opened a, uh, a shop in Santa Barbara and uh, became shoemakers for the stars. Um, and, and some of the historical things attributed to the Ferragamo uh, range is uh, they, invent, they invented the cork wedge heel. So if you've ever had a pair of cork wedged heel shoes or similar, um, then uh, that's the man, Salvatore Ferragamo is the, the man who invented that stuff. Uh, 56. He, uh, this was he, 1956. He went to Australia um, to seek inspiration. <laughs> exclamation mark! Exclamation mark! Um, but whilst there, uh, for an Australian customer, he made uh, a pair of 18 karat gold sandals in 1956. So um, that would have been a wedge of money, I would imagine, for a pair of them. 66. He created the felt ankle boot for Bridget Bardot. Uh, or Brigitte Bardot in uh, 76 uh, made shoes from a Donna's role in Evita so um, if you ever watch that movie again check out the shoes the Madonna's wearing there's Salvatore Ferragamo and uh, also sticking with the uh, uh, actresses and shoe wardrobes in 2009 he knocked up the uh, shoe wardrobe for, well not the wardrobe <laughs> So <laughs> don't want to get the guy doing carpentry. <laughs> Hang on, I'll just make you a wardrobe. He um <laughs> he created the shoe wardrobe. Yeah, no, stop. He created the shoes for uh, Nicole Kidman in her role in the movie Australia, that very long meandering yawn of what became a travelogue more than anything else. Scenically stunning, but plot-wise and story-wise, it was an absolute disaster. Um, so that's, uh, that's for the ladies in terms of heels um, for the season, in terms of what's fashionable for, for us blokes. It's boots by the French label A.P.C. I don't know if you need the full stops in between. The APC actually stands for something else as well. So it's A.P.C. Um, and this is a French label, uh, and it's uh, Jean Tuitou. Um, and he um, started his label in uh, 1980s. I don't know why I accentuated that. Jean Tuitou. Jean Tuitou launched APC in Paris in uh, 86. Um, it was very minimal style. And in fact, at the time, it created um, a, a, a bit of a, a bit of a, a notice around the place because um, it was uh, sort of going against the very ostentatious styles that were around. So it was very minimal um, in what he was doing. So there was uh, very pared down. Basics, elegant things like Breton striped sweaters, smock dresses, uh, ankle boots with a wedge style again, wedge ankle boots, back to uh, Ferragamo and, and what he'd done with cork. Um, and it's pretty similar when they went into menswear, very simple stuff. Uh, and um, but boots are the thing uh, for for the guys at the moment in terms of footwear. Um, and a uh, pair of those will uh, set you back about a thousand NZ. Uh, you, know, you won't, probably won't find any in this country, I don't think, in terms of in a store. Um, uh, Australia would be your nearest port of call should you feel you must have, it's a must-have item for the wardrobe on Waiheke. Um, but when, they, uh, when APC opened up uh, 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 another store in Los Angeles a while back, um, I quite liked the, uh, the, one of the press blogs that went out about it. 
not necessarily from the a.p.c. company, um, but it actually was on the uh, uh, blog site of coolhunting.com, um, and it read as follows. Uh, a.p.c.los Angeles flagship store, the label beloved the world over for its understated Parisian style, opens its doors in West Hollywood neighborhood of Los Angeles today. The second flagship in the US, the other is in New York, brings their always classic denim line, including cup status roster, of course, to the West Coast, along with the subtle femininity of their women's clothes, staple menswear, their more casual madras collection and accessories. Los Angeles shoppers should also be happy to have the full access to the impeccable quality of a.p.c.shoes. shoes. There you go. Eh? Now, that, what I was curious about that was <laughs> was the um, what I what I took to be a slight oxymoron with having a second flagship. Now, with the, if I take the definition of flagship, which when I had a look at it recently, was the ship in a fleet that carries the commanding admiral and or the best and most important thing owned or produced by a particular organization. So I'm not sure how you get two of those things. <laughs> I would have thought you could only have one flagship, but there you go. It's a bit of a puzzle. But then, what's a fashion story article without bucketfuls of simply marvelous marshmallow superlatives? Now, hats. Um, Tis the season for hats, of course, somewhere on the island. Although some of these you might be a bit hard pushed to wear because these are, are going to be slightly... Um, uh, they look a bit more like a, a winter line. However, um, this is what's hot in the uh, in the hat wearing department, um, and they're by, by uh, Moolbauer, uh, men and women's hats by Hat Atelier Moolbauer. And uh, Moolbauer or Bauer was formed by Juliana Moolbauer in 1903, um, who had opened a small millinery uh, with a shop attached to it in uh, Vienna, uh, Viennese based in Floridsdorf, um, and now it's in its fourth generation. So um, uh, Klaus Mulbar is now leading the brand um, and they're bringing it back, so they say, to its roots, um, the finished headgear of the highest quality, and uh, apparently taking the international market by storm in doing so. So if you can find yourself a, a Mulbar hat, then you're in. That's uh, very fashionable coming up. Uh, and the uh, last item in terms of uh, what's hot at the moment fashion-wise um, is, uh, this is for men and women, is jackets. Oh, as were the hats, that was men and women as well, if I didn't mention it. Jackets, also men and women. This is by Maison Kitsuni. Um, now, that's uh, another French outfit. Um, and they are distinguishable by their little black silhouetted fox, which is their logo. So if you see an item with one of those on it, sometimes they put it through the lining and stuff. Um, and it's in a, if, you, if you ever grab one of those at the market that Ostend, <laughs> going for 10 bucks, grab it because it's, uh, it's a Maison Kitsune, which um, you might be able to flog on for some dough. But they, uh, they're ready to wear collection started about six years ago, 2005, and uh, was seen to be, uh, quote, defining the new classic with distinguished clothing for men and women of the highest quality for everyday life. Some of the writing for fashion is, is a bit like wine. It's brilliant. Uh, oh, and uh, talking about wine, we've got a fantastic show, huge show coming up uh, next week, by the way. So um, we're, we're pairing wine with art. Um, and I have as a guest one of the island's uh, foremost um, knowledgeable uh, people on wine. So I'm really looking forward to that show. Um, but uh, yes, so some of this writing is almost what you get on the back of the labels on, on, on a bottle or two of, of wine. Um, 
So it goes on to say, a special care is given to the quality of the fabric, the tailoring of the garments, strategic sourcing of factories that still embrace artisan methods for a durable and timeless product, combining the philosophy of tradition with a modern attitude and shapes for clothing that lasts. Timeless elegance. There you go. Um, but I did have a look at, the, uh, at their suit range for guys. So they're doing jackets at the moment, which is going to be uh, high fashion for the uh, coming season for men and women. But I had checked out the suits that they've got for the guys. And I found this description of a suit, which was absolutely stunning. So I'll read you this. Is a, this is fantastic. Um, so it, so for, all, for all the guys out there thinking of buying a suit, um, would this do it for you, this description? A Jesse James kind of suit. A clean, straight and masculine cut. A suit outside of the convolutions of fashion, but ever so trendy. Association of wool and mohair made in France. This model B suit is perfect for the day and for the long nights. 73% wool, 27% mohair made in France. Um, the price is alright though, I'll set you back about 900 bucks, so that's not bad for a wool and mohair. Um, although it is a, a off the rack job. But um, but the style, I can't, the, the style, it's, it's not going to work for me, that's for sure, because uh, especially in the trouser department, um, if you think drain pipe trousers stopping about two inches above the ankle, um, that's the style of the trouser that seems to be uh, coming through, not just um, these guys at Maison Kitsune, but in a number of other designers as well. Um, I've got no idea um, why they seem to find that uh, appealing. It, it works if you built like a stick insect, but decidedly naff if you're of average build. And if you're a short ass like me, it's just a, it's a no hope. It's just never going to happen. I'll have to stick with my kilt. All right. So, um, so there you go. There's a quick rundown of uh, what's hot in the fashion world for the uh, months coming up. So if you want to be ahead of the pack, that's what you grab. And um, probably Australia is the place you'll need to head to as nearest port of call to grab some of the uh, those labels, unless by chance something sneaks on the blanket down at uh, Austin Market. Have, have a wee look and see what might be about. Now a second offering tonight um, in terms of conversations um, takes us uh, to the world of design as I mentioned a bit earlier and we're going to hear from Philippe Stark. Now Stark's been um, designing for I don't know over 30 years now I guess. Um, he's, he's done everything from his uh, famous uh, lemon squeezer right through to um, hotels, restaurants. Um, you name it, he's designing stuff. But his philosophy about design is really interesting, and we'll hear part of that in the uh, in the talk um, of it and the conversation that's coming up. Um, his, his dad was an inventor and an aeronautic engineer, and um, sort of kept, uh, uh, I guess, or, or created or encouraged him um, to create and, and imagine um, some possibilities, and also. And look at the practicalities of how you can make things happen from the from the engineer perspective. He's uh, French. I'm not sure that didn't mean anything by the uh, by the emphasis I made on that. Other than uh, you have to listen carefully um, to what he's saying because his accent um, is wonderful, uh, but it does require a bit of concentration. And it is worth concentrating on what he's saying because um, he's just got some wonderful things to say. Highly, highly uh, imaginative guy, um, and just his yeah, just his whole approach to design um, goes way beyond um, sitting down with a pen and paper and just kind of making something look nice. So sit back, uh, pin your ears uh, back, and uh, 
just enjoy this conversation with Philippe Stark. You will understand nothing with my type of English. Uh, it's, good, it's good for you because like that you can, can have a break after all these fantastic people. After, I must tell you, I'm very like that, not very comfortable. Because usually in life, I think my job is absolutely useless. Means I feel useless. Now, after uh, Caroline and uh, all the other guys, I feel like a shit. <laughs> and, and definitely, I don't know why I am here, but that looks like, uh, you know, the, the nightmare, you can have that, like you are an imposter. You arrive at the opera and they push you and say, you must sing. And, uh, I, I don't know how to do it. So, so we, because uh, I have nothing to show, <laughs> nothing to say, we shall try to speak about something else. Uh, we can start, if you want, by understanding, that's just to start, it's not interesting, but uh, uh, how I work. When somebody comes to me and uh, asks for what I am known, means, yes, lemon squeezer, toilet brush, <laughs> to speak, beautiful toilet seats, and why not a toothbrush? I don't try to design the toothbrush. I don't try to say, that, oh, that will be a beautiful object and things like that. That don't interest me because there is different type of design. The one, we can call that the cynical design. That means the design invented by Raymond Loewy in the 50s, who said what is ugly is a bad sale. Le lait se vend mal, which is terrible. That means the design must be just the weapon for marketing, for producers to make product more sexy like that. They sell more. It's a shit. It's obsolete. It's ridiculous. After, there is the, uh, I call that the cynical design. After, there is the, the, the narcissic design. It's fantastic designer who design only for other fantastic designers. <laughs> After, there is people like me who try to deserve to exist and who are so ashamed to make this useless job, who try to do it in a other way, and they, they, they try, I try to, to, to not make the object for the object, but for the result, for the proof profit for the human being, the person who will use it. If we take the toothbrush, if uh, I, I don't think about the toothbrush, I think what will be the effect of the toothbrush in the mouth. And to understand what will be the effect of the toothbrush in the mouth, I must imagine who owns this mouse. What is the life of the owner of this mouse? In what society this guy live? What civilization create this society? What animal species 
uh, create this civilization. When I arrive, don't that take one minute, huh? I am not so intelligent. When I arrive at the level of animal species, that become really interesting. Me, I have strictly no power to change anything. But when I come back, I can understand why I shall not do it, because today we uh, do not do it, it's more positive than do it, uh, or uh, how I shall do it. But to come back where uh, I, I am at the animal, animal species, there is things to see. There is things to see, there is the big challenge, the big challenge in front of us. Because there is not a human production which exists out of what I call the big image. The big image is our story, our poetry, our romanticism. Our poetry is our mutation, our life. We must remember, and we can see that in any book of my son of 10 years old, uh, that the life appeared 4 billion years ago, around 4 billion point two. Yes, point five. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I'm a designer, that's all, uh, of, of Christmas gift. Uh, and, and before there was this soup called Soup Primordial, uh, this uh, first soup, sort of dirty mud, no life, nothing. And suddenly, lightning arrive, make life, and that die. Some million years after, other, Ah, wake up. At the end, finally, that succeed and life appear. We was so, so stupid. The most stupid bacteria. Uh, even I think we, we, we copy our way to reproduce, you know what I mean, on something of crystal. Uh, no, forget. After we become a fish, after we become a frog, after we become a monkey, after we become what we are today, a super monkey. And the fun is, the super monkey we are today is at half of the story. Can you imagine, from this stupid bacteria to us, with a microphone, with a computer, with a iPod, four billion years. And we know, and especially Caroline, know that when the sun will implode, the earth will burn, explode, I don't know what, and this is scheduled for four for billion years. Yes, she said something like that. Okay, that means we are at half of the story. Fantastic. It's a beauty. Can you imagine? It's very symbolic. Because the bacteria we was had no idea of what we are today. And today, we have no idea of what we shall be in four billion years. And this territory is fantastic. That it's our poetry. That it's our, our beautiful story. It's our romanticism. Mutation. We are mutant. And if we don't deeply understand, if we don't integrate that we are mutant, we completely miss the story. Because every generation thinks we are the final one. We have a way to look at us like that, you know. I am the man. <laughs> the final man. You know, we mute uh, during four billion years before, but now, because it's me, we stop. <laughs> for the end, for the eternity.
it is one with a red uh, iron jacket and things like that. I am I am not sure of that because because that is our intelligence of mutation and things like that. There is so many things to do. There is so it's so fresh, and uh, there is something. Uh, we, we, nobody is obliged to be a genius, but everybody is obliged to participate. And to participate, for a mutant, there is a minimum of exercise, minimum of sport, we can say. The first, if you want, there is so many, but one which is very easy to do is the duty of vision. I can explain you. I shall try. If you walk like that. It's okay. It's okay. You can walk. But perhaps, because you walk with the eyes like that, you will not see, ah, there is a hole. And you will fall and you will die. Dangerous. That's why, perhaps, you will try to have this angle of vision. Okay. I can see if there is something. Up. Up. And I continue. Hop, 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 hop. I rise the angle of vision. But it's still very selfish. Selfish? Egoist. Yes, selfish. You, you, you survive. It's okay. If you rise the level of your eyes a little more, you, I see you. Oh my God, you are here. How are you? I can, I, I can, I can help you. I can design for you a new toothbrush, new toilet brush, something like that. I live in society. I live in community. It's okay. That start to be, to be, to be, you start to be in the territory of intelligence, we can say. That. From this level, and more you will rise this angle of view, more you will be important for the society. More you will rise, more you will be important for the civilization. More you will rise to, to see far and high like that, more you will be important for the story of our mutation. That means intelligent people are in this angle, that it's intelligence. From this to here, that it's a genius. Ptolemy, Eratosthem, uh, Einstein, things like that. Nobody is obliged to be a genius. It's better, but nobody. Uh, take care. In this, in this uh, training, to be a good mutant, there is some danger, there is some trap. One trap is the vertical. Because at the vertical of us, if you look like that, oh my God, there is God. Oh, God. God is a trap. God is the answer when we don't know the answer. That means when, when, you have, when your brain is not enough big, when you don't you understand, oh my God, oh, it's God. It's God. No, no, that is ridiculous. That's why jump this and come back like that. No, not jump, come back. Because after there is a other trap. If you look like that, you look to the past, or you look inside, if you are very flexible, inside yourself, it's called schizophrenia, and you are dead also. That's why every morning, now, because you are good mutant, you will raise your angle of view. Out more of the horizontal, you are in intelligence. Never forget. Like that, like that. It's very, very, very important. What, 
what, what else we can say about that? It's because, why do that? It's because we, if we look from far, we see our uh, line of evolution. This line of evolution is clearly positive. From far, this line looks very smooth, like that. But if you take a lens, like that, this line is like that. It's made of, uh, of light and shadow. We can say light is civilization, shadow is barbaria. And it's very important to know where we are. Because some, some cycle, there is part in the cycle, and uh, you have not the same duty in the different parts of the cycle. That means, that means we can imagine, I don't, I don't say it was fantastic, but in the 80s, there was not too much war, like that. Uh, it was, uh, we can imagine that the civilization can become civilized. In this case, people like me are acceptable. We can say it's luxurious time. We have time to think, we have time to, I don't know what, uh, speak about art and things like that. It's okay. We are in the light. But sometimes, like today, we fall, we fall so fast, so fast the shadow. We, we fall so fast to barbaria. So of, with many, 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 many faces of barbaria. Because it's not uh, the barbaria uh, we have today, it's not perhaps not the barbaria we think. There is different type of barbaria. That's why, that's why we must adapt us. That means, that means when barbaria is back, Forget the beautiful chairs, forget the beautiful hotel, forget design, even, I'm sorry to say it, forget art, forget all that. There is priority, there is urgence. You must go back to politics, you must go back to radicalization. I'm sorry if it's not very English. You must go back to fight, to battle. That's why today I'm so ashamed to make this job. That's why I am here to try to do it the best possible. But I know that even I do it the best possible, that's why I'm the best, uh, it's nothing, because it's not the right time. That's why I say that. I said that because, I repeat, nothing exists if it's not in the good rhythm, the rhythm of our beautiful dream of this civilization. And because we must all work to finish this story. Because the scenario of this civilization about love, progress, and things like that, it's okay. But there is so many different other scenarios of other civilization. This, this scenarios of this civilization was about become powerful, intelligent, like this idea we have invented, this concept of God. We are God now. We are. It's almost done. We have just to finish the story. That is very, very important. And when you don't understand really what's happened, you cannot go and fight and work and build and things like that. You, you go to the future, uh, back, 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 uh, back like that, and you can fall, and it's very dangerous. No, you must really 
understand that. Uh, because we, are, we have almost finished, I repeat this story, and the beauty of this. In perhaps 50 years, 60 years, we can finish completely this civilization and offer to our children the possibility to invent a new story, a new poetry, a new romanticism with billions of people who have born, work, live and died, died, die before us. These people we have worked so much. We have now bring beautiful things, beautiful gifts. We know so many, so many, so many things. We can say to our children, okay, Done. That was our story. That passed. Now you have a duty. Invent a new story. Invent a new poetry. The only rule is we have not to have any idea about the next story. We give you a, a white pages. Invent. We, we give you the best tools, the best, uh, uh, the best tools, I'm sorry, and, and now do it. That is, that's why I continue to work, even if it's for toilet brush. What an interesting guy. Fantastic. Great to hear from Philippe Stark. Now, the piece of music playing as a backing track at the moment uh, is coming from an album that is called Lotus Groove. It's a uh, world dance music. Um, it's got a whole lot of uh, Eastern sounds mixed in. You can hear some tablas and quora and dota. There's an uh, instrument called the clay pot, which is surprisingly enough a clay pot. It was a dumbbeck. Uh, Daruba and the gaida, which is a uh, bagpipe. Sorry, let me go back to last week. Um, I played some unusual instruments. Uh, Lindsay Pollack, well, I didn't, but some people did. Lindsay Pollack was one of them. He played the uh, carrot clarinet, the uh, watering can clarinet, and uh, the bagpipes with a rubber glove. <laughs> But if you didn't listen to last week, then what I've just said sounds quite bizarre. But Lindsay is an Australian, and uh, what he does is make music, uh, fantastic music, out of a variety of uh, uh, bits and pieces, um, turning them into musical instruments. And uh, he features on this uh, Lotus Groove album, um, playing the gaida, which is a form of bagpipe, and the three other people uh, who are on this particular track called Pongi Thongi, uh, the three other people on this particular track are all playing an instrument called a thongophone. So we get Jessica Ainsworth, we've got Ali Adams, and we get Mick Moore uh, playing um, a thing called a thongophone. Now, a thongophone, as you may suspect by the name, um, is a thong uh, wired up to a uh, pickup and um, and then amplified, so it makes a yeah. A, a sort of a stringed sound that you can hear the almost like a bass uh, in the background. Um, so it's just it's amazing what you can do with everyday items from your wardrobe. Um, so that's it for the uh, show this week. Um, you can hear the show again at www.waihikiradio.org.nz. Look for the show page um, and the and the play again functions on there. We'll have the podcast of the show up either later on tonight or tomorrow. And uh, the show again, you'll have a chance to hear it again on Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock. So uh, next week, uh, looking forward to next week's show already because we have uh, 
a, a master of uh, wine knowledge joining me and we're going to have a, a look at art and wine see if we can match up a, a favorite tipple with a particular piece of art and uh, join us for that eight o'clock next thursday till then bye now